Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, to begin to answer that question today, we need to define the kingdom of God. And I'd like to offer you a definition. The kingdom of God is the place where God is in charge, where God's rule is recognized and God's rule is actualized. To say that God's rule is recognized means that people acknowledge that God is in charge, that Jesus is Lord and King. To say that God's rule is actualized means not only that God is in charge, but that his will is known and his will is obeyed in every way and in every place. And so the Bible says that there's a day coming when God's rule will be recognized fully. The Bible tells us there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the Bible also tells us that there is a day coming when God's rule will be actualized in every place, that Jesus will return and he will completely defeat sin and death and evil and everything that belongs to sin and death and evil. And as a consequence, there will be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. God's will will be done everywhere completely. That day is in the future in many ways. And yet we recognize that as disciples of Jesus, these things are beginning to be true in us. We, as disciples of Jesus, recognize that God is in charge and we are actualized in obeying. We obey God. And so the kingdom of God is beginning in slices inside of us. So what is the kingdom of God like? Actually, Jesus tells a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13 that begin to answer that question. A parable is a story or an object lesson that helps us to take something that we know and understand from everyday experience and use it to grasp a spiritual and deeper truth. And Jesus tells a series of parables in Matthew chapter 13, the subject of which is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? That's the subject Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 13. That's the subject that Jesus is addressing specifically in the two parables that we're looking at this week, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And as we look at those parables, we're actually going to do that over three weeks. And today, really what we're going to see is those two parables together begin to show us something about who God is as we ask, what is his kingdom like? Now, as we dig into the question of what is the kingdom of God like in Matthew chapter 13, we have to understand, first of all, that Jesus was surrounded by people who did not understand 
the kingdom of God. To understand what was going on in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, we kind of have to actually go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 13 to get the setting. Where this parable pair is set in Matthew chapter 13 and in Jesus's life. And, and I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles out. They may be digital, they may be paper, but get your Bible out because I want to show you how we answer such questions because we get the setting for Matthew chapter 30, 13 verses 31 through 33 back at the beginning of the chapter, back at Matthew chapter 13 verse 1 where we read that same day. Matthew chapter 13 verse 1 begins very simply that same day. What day is that? What day is this that we are addressing? We want to know what day it was and what led Jesus to be talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Why was this such a question? And to answer that, we have to go back and look where this day began. And to understand that, we go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and following, where Jesus one day was walking into a town with his disciples through a field, and we find out what happened in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Look back there where we read. At that time, so on that day, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh-oh, it was that day. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And so we see a plot set up here. Jesus is walking through the fields, one morning with his disciples on the way to a town. We're not told what town it is, but we are told that the disciples became hungry and they were in a field of grain, so they did the very natural thing. They just reached down and pulled some head, some, some, some grains off of the stalks at their hands and began to eat, which is really not a problem as far as customs go, except that it was the Sabbath. And the law said that the Sabbath is a day to do no work. And the customs of the Jewish religious leaders said that even plucking grain off of a stalk to put in your mouth qualified as work. And the Jewish religious leaders saw what the disciples did. And they confronted Jesus and they asked, how could you let your disciples do such a thing? And Jesus said, you really just don't understand the kingdom of God, do you? Jesus continued on into town. If, you're, if you've got your Bible open, scan down and you'll see in verses 9 and following that Jesus went into the town and he went into the synagogue in that town and there was a dilemma waiting for Jesus there. There was a man in that synagogue with a withered hand and the religious leaders were watching to see what Jesus would do. Would he heal the man or not? And we come then to verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the religious leaders, asked him, that is Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? So they might accuse him because they knew what he would do. They knew that it was in Jesus's will to heal this man. And of course he did. And the question then becomes, how could you do such a thing? How could you break our customs? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. 
Jesus and his disciples left that synagogue, and later that day, they kept doing things. Jesus kept healing people that day. In fact, Jesus came upon a person that the Bible says was demon-oppressed in verse 22, and consequently, this person was blind and mute, and Jesus healed even that man. He cast the demon out, and the man's life was right from that point forward, and people were marveling. They were asking the question, how could he do such things? He, he must be the son of David, meaning that he is the Messiah. But the religious leaders had a different solution. In verse 24, we read, but when the Pharisees heard it, that is what had happened, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Whereas other people were beginning to ask, could this be the Messiah? The religious leaders came to a conclusion, it's only by a demon that you could cast out demons. And again, they're asking about Jesus. How else could he do such a thing? And then as we get down even to the end of the chapter, it's later in that very same day. Look down at verse 46 and following. You'll see Jesus made his way to a house, and he was continuing to teach. And while he was in that house, report came to him that his own family was there, his mother and his brothers, and that they wanted to see him outside. And Jesus responded in a way that might seem disrespectful at first. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It sounds like a wrong thing to say about your family, but it reminds us of the fact that sometimes Jesus' relationship, particularly with his siblings, was a bit problematic. In the book of Mark, chapter 3, we read, and when his family, that Jesus' family, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And so even people in Jesus' family were saying, how could you do such a thing? None of them understood exactly who Jesus was or what the kingdom of God was really like. And so that same day, that day, when all of these things happened, Jesus left the house where he was teaching. He went outside. He went down to the shore. A crowd followed him and assembled on the shore. Jesus got into a boat just off of shore. And he sat down. And sitting down was his way of claiming the authority to teach. Jesus had something important to say. He wanted to explain by parables what the kingdom of God is like. And now we come to the parables of mustard seed and of the leaven. And something that we learn about God in the process is this. God is the sower who initiates the kingdom of God. God is the sower who initiates the kingdom of God. Now, let's read Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33 again. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them. He had done it Twice already, he put parables in front of them to explain the kingdom of God. He put this next parable in front of them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, 
But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, what I want you to see in part about these parables today is that the action in these parables is already accomplished. It is, in a sense, in the past. The action is already accomplished. And by that, I mean, look, in the first parable, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. The taking and the sowing is not something that happens in the present or the future. It is something that is accomplished. It is finished. It is done. The kingdom of heaven is like some yeast that a woman took and put in a lump of dough. It's not something that will be taken. It's not something that is being taken. It's not something that's being taken all along. It's something that is accomplished. It has been taken. She took it and she put it in the lump of dough. We're beginning to see something important about God and about the kingdom of God here, and that is that God is the one who initiates the kingdom of God. Look, God is like that sower. He took a seed and put it in the ground. He is like that woman who took yeast and put it in a lump of dough. It is an accomplished and completed type of action. What does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God is not something simply that's coming in the future. It's not something that's unfolding only now. It is something that started in the past, and it speaks not only to its time, but to the fact that it is God. We don't start the kingdom of God. We don't create the kingdom of God. God initiates the kingdom of God, his rule. God is the one who starts and secures the kingdom of God. And that is very good news. Why? Because sometimes you've got to leave the work to the professionals. Now, I'm a big fan of doing everything that I can around the house myself, but I also recognize that I'm not that talented and that there are times when you need to call in a professional. And, and I learned that a long time ago, back in college. Between my sophomore and junior years, my roommate and I thought, we need a sofa for our dorm room. And we were broke college students, so we said, we can't afford to buy a sofa, a new sofa. You would think the thought would cross our minds that a used sofa would be inexpensive and a good solution, but no. I thought, I know what I'll do. Being the great handyman that I am, I'll make a sofa. So I went and bought wood. You know, wood is cheap, right? Not. And then I thought, we need cushions. And we need upholstery fabric to cover those cushions with. Did you know that cushions and upholstery fabric are quite expensive? And then we needed a system to suspend them that would make the sofa comfortable. As it turns out, that's complicated and expensive as well. And then as the summer went on, I got busy and realized I don't know how to build things. 
And so my roommate and his dad constructed the frame for the sofa, and I realized I don't know how to sew. So my roommate's mom took the upholstery fabric and sewed the covers for the cushions, and at the end of the summer, we had a sofa that was really heavy, really expensive, that I had nothing to do with. And I'll never forget that lesson because sometimes you need to leave a job to the professionals. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, God is the professional. God is the one who initiates the kingdom of God. And that sounds like a very small statement to make, but please understand what that means. It means that I don't initiate the kingdom of God. I don't start the kingdom of God. You don't start the kingdom of God. It means that I am not responsible for the kingdom of God, and you are not responsible for the kingdom of God. It means that I can't mess up the kingdom of God, and you can't mess up the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is started by God. It is sustained by God. It is his gift to us. It is his responsibility, and he is the one whose power starts and secures his kingdom. God is the sower. He is the initiator of his kingdom. But like God, we are sowers. God, we find in this parable, is the sower. God is the one who stands in as the one who put the seed of mustard in the ground that represents the kingdom of God. God is the one who put the yeast in the lump of dough. God is the sower here when it comes to the kingdom of God. But this is just pointing out to us something that is important and true about the nature of God. God is the great initiator God is the great starter of things. God is the one who made the great initiative choice about us before time ever began. We read about this in the book of Ephesians, where we read things that we know and expect and things that surprise us, things we know and expect. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what we know. Blessed be God because he has chosen us in Jesus and blessed us in Jesus. We know that. But then we're surprised because we read, even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Wait, what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means that before he ever created the world, God had already decided to save us. Before he ever created the world, God knew that creating the world would lead Jesus to the cross, and yet God did it anyway. God is the great initiator God is also on top of that, because of that, the great generous one. God is the one who chose to create the world and to create us and to give us the breath of life in order to have a relationship with us. God is the one who filled creation with all of the good things that we would ever need. 
God is the one who continues to cause the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is the one who, when we sinned against him, had a plan. God is the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world. God the Son is the one who set aside heaven to come to us. Jesus, God the Son, is the one who chose to give his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin. God is the one who gives us now forgiveness and adoption as his sons and daughters. God is the one who pours out his Holy Spirit on us, who gives us new life and eternal life. God is the generous one. He is the sower. He is the great initiator. He is the generous one. And we are created in his image. Now, when we say that we are created in his image, it means we're like him. We do some of the things that he does. We are not like him in every way, and we do not do everything that he does, but we are like him in some ways, and we do some things that he does. And like God, who is the great sower, we are sowers. And he's told us that we are sowers from the very beginning of all things. In Genesis chapter 1, as God created us, he gave us commands to sow. He said, and God blessed them, Genesis 1.28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave us life and then he said, be abundant, fill the world with life, have dominion over it in ways like I do, which are life-giving ways. Tend the soil, till creation, take care of it all, be sowers. And then as God made promises to Abraham. God made some promises to Abraham that are unique to him. God promised that Abraham would be the father of a nation and ultimately of many nations and that he would bless the world through him. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we read, and I, that is God, will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there are promises here that do not apply to us. God doesn't promise to make us into a great nation, and he doesn't promise to bless all of the nations of earth through us, but we have a pattern that is being established here. God blesses in order that we would be a blessing, and that pattern that we've seen in Abraham that we have discussed before applies to us as well. We are sowers as God is a sower, and that is reflected in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where we read, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are given the task of sowing. And in the kingdom of God, as God is the great sower, the great initiator, the generous one, we who are created in his image are likewise to be sowers, to be generous. That leads to a question. Being sowers means that we practice generosity. Now, I want to 
I want to step aside for just a second and say something and be very clear. You heard me talk about the church's finances earlier today, and you may say, oops, saw that coming. Two have nothing to do with one another. I planned this message four or five months ago to happen today, okay? Why? Because this is an important biblical topic. Can we set that all aside and focus on a biblical topic today? Because being sowers means that we practice generosity. This is a critical spiritual habit for us, a critical rhythm for us to understand. Let's unpack it just a bit. What does that look like and what does that mean? Well, disciples of Jesus practice generosity by funding ministry together. In the New Testament, we read that as the church was created, amazing things happened. Jesus rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and his disciples were gathered together, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And when God the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples of Jesus and the church was born, their spiritual condition seemed to change. They thrived and they flourished, but they did different things as well. When God the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church, they began to engage in radical generosity to people. They made sure that anyone with need in the church had that need met. Anyone near the church had their need met. And it was a costly enterprise for them because many of the disciples in the early church in Jerusalem were desperately poor themselves, and yet they did everything they could to do the ministry that they were called to do. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, we read, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners even of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Because disciples of Jesus practiced generosity by funding ministry together. On top of that, disciples of Jesus practiced generosity by funding the church's mission together. Even we see as Jesus is on mission in the New Testament. He is the Son of God. He is the one through whom the world was made. He is the one who owns everything. He could have funded his mission any way he chose to do. But he chose to use people to fund his mission. In Luke chapter 8, we read about some of the people that he chose to, to fund that mission. There's Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, that is for Jesus and the disciples, out of their means. Because disciples of Jesus practiced generosity by funding the church's mission Together, this is what we do, that people might know Christ. But disciples of Jesus practice generosity in many ways. In fact, in John chapter 13, as Jesus is preparing to be betrayed later that night, he tells his disciples that some of their generosity is meant to come out in loving deeds and actions of service toward one another. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, we read, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But it's not just loving acts of service toward one another that we're generous in. We're generous in good deeds because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that that becomes like a light and a hope to the nations. Verses 14 through 16 read, you are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we do good deeds, and that becomes light to the world. We practice generosity as disciples of Jesus in so many ways because we're made in the image of God. He is the great sower. He is the great initiator. He is the generous one. And we are made in his image. That doesn't mean we're like him in every way or that we do everything that he does, but it does mean that we are like him in some ways and we do some things that he does. And we are like him in this way. We, the disciples of Jesus, are meant to be generous. And so that leads to the question, what is your next step in generosity? Maybe it is to give something in order that ministry or mission might happen, give something in order that God might get much glory and there might be light in the world. It may be that you give regularly, that you begin the discipline perhaps of giving weekly or on a monthly basis. Could be that you give something with a plan, perhaps a set dollar figure or a percentage of income to fund ministry and mission. And if you're growing in generosity, it could be that you begin to give sacrificially. Because the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that we would give anything and everything to have. So what is your next step in generosity? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.